0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com Amen. Good morning. How are you? Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We are slowly making our way through this gospel, Lord willing. We will finish it when we finish it. Or, Jesus will come back. Which would be better by far. As you're finding it, let me say happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers in the room, the first time mothers, those that have been mothers for many decades, praise God. And I also want to say that, uh, just praise God for women. Women, the feminine soul is under attack in our culture And I want to pray God's grace over women in this church and believing women in our nation this morning. So let me do that as you're finding John 12. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that in your kind wisdom in the garden, you created Adam and Eve, man and woman, in your image, co-image bearers. We praise you for the feminine soul made in its complementary, beautiful design. We thank you that men and women are co-laborers, co-heirs in Christ. Equal in glory, but different in role. We realize our world has confused that. We live in a, in a confused world where men claim to be women. And our culture celebrates it. Lord, may the church be a bastion of clarity to a wicked world and compassion to broken, confused souls that are refugees of this brokenness. Lord, we celebrate women. May Crosspoint be a place where women are safe, where they are valued, where they are respected and cherished. And Lord, on this Mother's Day, we think about what has happened in our nation this past week or so with the leaking of these documents from the Supreme Court we pray that it might be so, that the wickedness of this decision some 40, 50 years ago of Roe versus Wade would be overturned. But Lord, we know that's just a law written on a book. It it can't change hearts. And so we pray that this would be a step towards our nation pursuing righteousness and towards the church being a place where the gospel is preached and where hurting souls that find themselves in trouble and far away from the Lord can find refuge, where lives would be protected. Lord, may this be so. And now, Lord, the most important thing we can do on this Sunday is to turn our attention to Your Word as we appropriately read about a woman who is a wonderful model for us of what it means to worship Jesus. Lord, help us to meet you in the text this morning. And I confess my utter weakness to really do any spiritual good to these people in my own strength. So Lord, help me. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Meet us in your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to read through this text, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. It is a beautiful and familiar story of Mary anointing Jesus with this expensive ointment. We're just going to have the scripture on the screen this morning, and I want you to, to hear one point from this text, that Mary is an example, a beautiful example to us of extravagant, sincere pure-hearted, humble worship of Jesus. Mary is a picture that we should all see and that we should want to emulate. Mary is a picture of extravagant worship. John chapter 12, verse 1. We've just finished the resurrection of Jesus. or I'm sorry, the resurrection of Lazarus and the Jewish authorities are wanting to kill Jesus and in a minute we're going to see that they're going to want to kill Lazarus and tension is mounting. We're halfway through this gospel, but we're really approaching the last week or so of Jesus' life. So John chapter 12 verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. In then verses 9, 10, and 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Okay, first I want us to look at Mary, and then we're going to look very briefly at Judas, and then finally at Jesus in this passage. But first I want, I want us to see... Mary in this scene. Let's understand the background. Mary and her sister Martha. Are having a dinner for Jesus, presumably to say, and you'd imagine this is a wonderful thing to do—to say thank you for raising her brother, their brother, from the dead. And once again, we see these familiar roles. It's just laced throughout all of the Gospels. There's there's Martha in verse two. It just says Martha served. Remember, we've noted this a few times in the story of Lazarus is raising that Martha is this sort of busybody sister, and Mary is the one that is worshiping Jesus. And again, we see Martha serving. And it seems like maybe Martha kind of gets a bad rap as the one who's always sort of doing something when the more important thing would have been to be worshiping Jesus. But I just want to say praise God for Martha who served. Praise God for people who get stuff done. In fact, when, you, when we leave here in a little bit, praise God for the people that are serving in children's ministry. Praise God for the people that greet it. Praise God for the musicians who come and prepare and practice. Praise God for people that are teaching Sunday morning classes. I mean, praise God for Martha's. Praise God for people who do stuff. I, I was blessed by that. Amen. And so there's this background where these two sisters are throwing a party for Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead. Just imagine with me, it can read kind of flatly on the text, but on the passage, on the, on the page, but just imagine the joy that is around this table. And, and one little note here on verse 2 is that Lazarus, who has just been raised from the dead is one of the people reclining with Jesus at the table. Imagine the conversation that's going on between Jesus and Lazarus at this dinner party. And there's one thing we need to mention before we progress through this story and we look at Mary. We need to be aware that this story is one of those stories that it shows up in all of the Gospels. Matthew and Matthew 26 and Mark and Mark chapter 14, both mention this story. And Luke also mentions a similar story in Luke chapter 7. But in Luke chapter 7, what's going on is he, he is calling this woman who comes to anoint Jesus and cries at his feet. He calls her a woman of the night or a woman of the city, uh, a woman who was of loose morals. And I don't think that the woman that he is referring to, that Luke is talking about in Luke chapter 7, is the same. It's not Mary here. I think it's two separate occasions. But Matthew 26 and Mark chapter 14 both record this same event with a few variations. One notable one is that in Matthew and Mark, the, the woman, Mary, who is anointing Jesus, also anoints his head in the other two Gospels, whereas in John, it's just anointing his feet. And the other notable detail in Matthew and Mark is that it mentions that the host of this dinner party is a man called Simon the leper. We'll get to that in just a second. Now, there are reasons why the different gospel writers would have different angles or different aspects. Each gospel writer is wanting to highlight something different about Jesus. And here in John, John is wanting to highlight a particular aspect, I think, of how Mary approached Jesus in this extravagant humility. But notice also, I just mentioned this, notice the dinner host. In Matthew and Mark, it mentions that the dinner host is Simon the leper. So notice who's around this table. There's these two sisters whose brother has been brought back to life. There's the very man himself, Lazarus, who's been brought back to life. And then there's this man, Simon, who has been healed of his leprosy. Imagine the, the vibe around this table. Imagine the love and the gratitude and the joy that filled that room. A, a, a thought would be that I just wrote down here is that spiritual electricity overflowing with thankfulness must have been the, 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 the spirit of that room. Lazarus, risen from the dead. Simon, healed of his leprosy. And these sisters so thankful for what Jesus has done with them. And let's look closely at what Mary does in verse 3. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and she anointed the feet of Jesus as opposed to the head. It doesn't mean that there's a contradiction in the Bible between Matthew and Mark and John. It just means that John is looking at a different aspect. I think, I think we can surmise that she did both, but John is focusing on the fact that she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So just, just, just a, a study tip here. I'm going want, want to make a couple applications over what I think is going on in verse 3. And generally, I believe that we should be cautious about sort of over-spiritualizing the Bible. We shouldn't look at some sort of spiritual meaning behind every verse. I think sometimes Christians can kind of run into a little bit of trouble when they do that. They tend to over-spiritualize things, if, if you know what I mean. But... I think John actually invites us to do that. What makes John's gospel a little bit different than Matthew and Mark, which are more of a historical narrative, just telling the story, John is organizing Jesus' life around sort of the greatest hits, if you will, of his ministry and his miracles. And he's organizing his telling of his gospel account of Jesus' life and ministry around seven I Am statements and seven miracles of Jesus. And so John, I believe, woven into just the way John is presenting the story of Jesus, he's actually wanting less to tell a historical, chronological narrative of Jesus' life and ministry. That's more of the burden of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And rather, John is wanting to draw out spiritual application from Jesus' life. It's not that the other gospels that are not also doing that, and it's not that John is also telling a historical narrative, but John has a particular burden to make spiritual points and application. And I think it's rich in verse three. I think we are warranted in seeing a kind of spiritual application behind Mary's actions. And look at it. Just take a look at what she is doing here in verse three. She's, first of all, she has a pound of expensive oil or ointment made from pure nard. So this would have been about 12 ounces of oil, way more than she would have needed. Note the description of the oil, it's pure nard, it's pure, it's, it's, it's a kind of beauty in, in the, even the, the quality of the oil. It mentions that it was expensive ointment. It mentions that she anointed his feet as opposed to his head. What's going on there? Why would John note that? And note that she does it with her hair rather than a rag or her hands. And then note that the whole room was filled with the aroma of the oil. What is John trying to point our attention to? And I think it's this, is that Mary is held up by John, by ultimately the Holy Spirit, as an example of sacrificial, sincere, humble, extravagant worship. Sacrificial because this this oil costs so much sincere, the the purity of the oil, the humility of, of washing his feet and the extravagance of what seemed like wasteful in the eyes of the people watching. She comes to Jesus and John is wanting to slow down and give us all of these details to show us that Mary isn't just going through the motions. She's doing something that seems strange and unusual to the people that were viewing her. She was She was extravagantly worshiping Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, we, in contrast to this, we live in a world of just so much convenience. And make no mistake about it, this this is often a wonderful blessing. And we should not be ashamed that we live in the time of air conditioning and amplification and, and refrigerators. Uh, recently, Jennifer and I, uh, about the time around Christmas, kind of in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, our refrigerator broke. And, um, it, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it wasn't the best couple weeks we've ever had together as a family. Let me just put it to you that way. wasn't the best. And I, I'm, not, I'm not wanting to sort of, you know, uh, punish us for being born in this particular time. Acts chapter 17, Paul stands up on Mars Hill and he gives this wonderful speech, this wonderful sermon about how it is God's sovereignty that is determined that all of us, when we would be born, where would we, we, we would be born. It is God's kind providence that we live now. And we don't need to overreact to our modern culture and go out in the desert and beat ourselves with whips like some people have done in the history of the church because they felt bad for the culture that they lived in. No, every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, James says. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So praise God for padded seats. Praise God for a nice building. Praise God for amplification. Praise God for refrigerators. Praise God for freezers that hold ice cream pies that I will be delighted to eat this afternoon. Can I get an amen? But here's my point, friends. As Christians, we must always sort of have our radar up to know how we can turn good gifts into ultimate things and how they can lull us to sleep and disciple us into a mindset that leads us a thousand miles away from where Mary is in this passage. There is another side to the comforts of modern life that we must be very aware of it can lull us to sleep it can make us spiritually lazy and even worse it can make us spiritually entitled an attitude of entitlement and a consistent default mode of always looking to have our preferences met and satisfied is poison for our souls it cripples our spiritual life and turns us inward on ourselves And this craving for convenience turns us into consumers and subconscious malcontents that run from church to church and relationship to relationship and friendship to friendship because we have allowed ourselves to be programmed into this notion that everything has to be right and comfortable and convenient and easy in order for me to meet with Jesus. And here is this woman who has abandoned any notion of pragmatism or a kind of worldly wisdom or convenience and likely the most valuable thing that she has, which would have been, note that there was 300 denarii. Judas in just a moment is going to criticize her for what seemed to be in his mind wastefulness and he says that we could have sold this oil for 300 denarii. Now how much is that? One denarii would have been about one day's wage for your average laborer. So, over the course of a year, that would have been about equivalently for a woman, probably in her social stratus, would have been about a year's salary. And she seemingly is inconveniencing herself doing something that seems to run in the opposite direction of wisdom and she breaks it and she pours it on Jesus and anoints Him with the most expensive thing that she can. This is extravagant. And it is not convenient. Mary's example dismantles this this sort of holding back, this come to me and, and give me something that will please me way of worshiping Jesus. Notice that, again, the oil was expensive. It was sacrificial. I noticed that it was pure. I think this is a, a kind of symbol of her sincerity and the purity of her heart in coming to Jesus. It wasn't some secondhand leftover. It was the best. It was her best. I notice this is strange, but she uses her hair to wash his feet. Now, some have speculated through the centuries as they've written, Christians have written on this verse, like what's going on in that interaction? Some have thought, is there some, is there some sort of relationship that this hint, is hinted at between Mary and Jesus? No. No, I think a better understanding of this is it is an act of sincere humility and reverence. One commentator says that there is evidence from the ancient world that suggests that the lowering of one's hair in this manner is a sign of extreme gratitude and an expression of humility. Similar to a, a, like a, a dog that, that sort of rolls over and gives themself in submission to its master. Similarly would be this, this, this letting down, this humility, this letting down of her hair and using it to wash, wash his feet and then there is this extravagance of, of washing his feet, which, which, which would have been part of the unclean part of him. And the other gospel accounts mention his head, but here in John, it mentions his feet. So what's going on? Well, to anoint a person's head would be common throughout the scriptures and in the ancient world it's mentioned several times in the old testament and it denoted royalty that he was a common practice so certainly his head deserved to be anointed because he is the king but john takes care to mention that she anointed his feet what's going on here again this is very rare, but there are examples in first century culture where this type of anointing, this type of act would be, and I quote here another commentator says, an act of extreme extravagance. That she would wash his feet and that she would humble herself and that she would use this probably most valuable thing that she possessed, a year's worth of wages, and she would, in the eyes of the world, seemingly waste it on His feet. Friends, this runs counter to the way we often view approaching Jesus. And then just note that the house was filled with the fragrance of this oil. Matthew and Mark, I think, pick up on this in their account when they say, in their account that Jesus said, when he's speaking about what Mary had done, he says that wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so here we are, some 2,000 years later, and we're in a sense, we're still smelling, think about this. We're still smelling the fragrance of this beautiful act of worship of this woman. So if you can think of it this way, a kind of spiritualized application of the, the fragrance that's filled the room. It has become an aroma, an example of worship for the church, for God's people for centuries to come. This worship act, this fragrance of Mary's extravagant devotion to Jesus didn't just fill that room. It's filled the centuries is an example of worship to Jesus. Here's just my point, friends. Lord, make us, make me more like Mary. Make us more like Mary. Now let me just say something pastorally before we move on. And Judas is going to be much quicker as we look at him, and then we're going to end on Jesus. But I think I want to make an application for my own soul, and I think some of you might, might fit in this application as well. I am not saying that we do things out of order. I think 1 Corinthians 14 says that we should do things decently and in order. But I think there are two things that sometimes, that sometimes inhibit us from whatever it looks like in our lives to sort of extravagantly, just sort of in, a, in, a, in, a, in just an a, a open-hearted abandon of worshiping Jesus. And those two things are is that, that, that sometimes people like us that tend to put a, an, a real high premium on doctrine and theology miss the point of doctrine and theology. Doctrine and theology are meant to produce in us doxology. The study of God is meant to produce in us the worship of God. Now, I am not, I am not advocating tambourines and streamers, and that's not what I'm talking about. I spent a sufficient amount of time in the Pentecostal side of the church, and I, I got my fill. And I am thankful for our accent on doctrine. I am thankful for the way we comport ourselves. I am not talking about acting differently. I don't think the spiritual application here is that we act differently in the hour and a half or two hours when we gather. This is a heart posture. And I want doctrine to warm my heart. I want my study of God to produce in me a freedom of my soul to come to Jesus in ways that might seem strange or extravagant to this world, not because I want the world to see me and say, oh, he's different, he's really spiritual, because I want to love Jesus better. So let's not let, like our doctrine and our education and kind of the general class that we may fall in, let's not let those things hold us back. And I had a second thing, but I can't remember it, so we're just going to have to go with just one thing. That's one thing. <laughs> Do you understand my, my point, friends? And, and What does it look like in your life to be more like Mary here? I just feel like sometimes people like us are always sort of holding back, you know? At, may, maybe because our Christianity is more of just like a social thing. You know is that it is, is is your Christianity just another little is it like the rotary club? Or is it just the thing that you have sort of subconsciously grabbed a hold of because you want to raise good little moral kids? I know I know none of us are making that conscious thought but that that can be actually how we live things out because, again, we're, we're discipled by this world. We're around people who are always sort of wanting to make much of themselves, and, and it's all about how Jesus can help us, and, and, and there's just no extravagance. And, and so we're just always pragmatic, and we're, we're just awash. We, we just swim in the waters of practicality. And Mary is a counter to that. She is an extravagant example of sacrificial, sincere worship of Jesus. What does that look like in my life and in your life? Let's keep going. Judas Iscariot, what was he all about here? And notice this question. Why was this ointment, verse 5, not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, on some level... Uh, I think we can say that his question is somewhat valid. There are practical applications to be thought about in ministry. We don't want to be wasteful. But John gives us a little peek behind his motivation. Verse 6, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Man, Judas just gets outed. Friends, if Mary is an example of extravagant, sacrificial, sincere, pure-hearted worship, Judas is an example of spiritual thievery, using Jesus for our own selfish means. And we need to do a little bit of work here to apply this because most of us probably don't think of ourselves as thieves, uh, in a monetary sense, anyway, most of us aren't. We have never actually stolen something physical. And certainly not. Most of us have never stolen something from the church. But then, what does this have to do with me? We need to dig a little bit deeper. Jesus was using... Think about, think about spending all of this time with Jesus... And at the end of Jesus' life, we see Judas, despite the fact, this should be a kind of, this should be like spiritual ammonia underneath our nostrils, that it is possible to be right next to Jesus for three years and to see him walk on water, feed the multitudes, do all sorts of miracles, so many so that John says at the end of his gospel that there's not enough room in the world to contain all the books that we could write about all that Jesus did. And as the pinnacle of that, he sees Jesus here just moments before, just at least days before, raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet it is possible to have your heart be so calloused and dead that you are still thinking about how you can steal from the money bags in this itinerant ministry of jesus friends this is a this is a wake-up call of how spiritually deceptive we can be with our own souls and he can publicly sort of ask what seems to be a spiritual question you see how spirituality, a faux spirituality, uh, spirituality can hide behind, it can hide the most wicked of hearts? And he says here, well, we could use this for the poor. But what's really going on in his heart is he's wanting to dip his hands Into the treasury because he was a thief. And then we'll see as we get to the end of John that he sells out Jesus to the Romans. Friends, Judas is a striking example of the depth of how terribly the human soul can deceive itself. I mean, it's one thing, it's one thing to lie to everybody else. But it's another thing to lie to yourself, and to actually n- there's a there's a way that we, there's a mode that we can get in where we we can tell a lie so much that we actually start believing it ourselves. Has anybody else sort of ex- ever experienced that in their own soul? Or am I am I the only one here? It's just you know, you can just you can capitulate you can just rehearse your your interpretation of the events and you end up making yourself the victim of something rather than the perpetrator and here's the sad thing you can do that so much in your life that you can actually start to believe it and i bet you when i bet you when judas stood up i bet you he probably was at a point of deceit there's something about the hardness of the heart three years of walking in deceit with Jesus, he probably actually believed that he was being sort of virtuous in that moment. And yet his heart is a million miles away. Now friends, we may not be money thieves, but at some point we must all fight the temptation to be glory thieves, to come to Jesus for what we can merely get out of him. Well, let's keep going, verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, this is interesting, verses 7 and 8, leave her alone so that she may keep it. We're going to end on these two verses. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Oh, that's interesting. What does Jesus mean by that? And in verse 8, he says, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Okay, let's start by trying to understand what he's saying in verse 8, and then we'll go back to verse 7. His response is striking. It's amazing. Look at verse 8. He says, The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So what is Jesus saying here? Certainly, he is not diminishing the plight of the poor. Certainly. This is not an indication that Jesus is saying that he does not care much about poor people. That's not the case. The Bible is full and the Bible is written by our triune God. It is written with exhortations that we should be aware that we should care for those less fortunate with us than us. That that is absolutely a biblical theme that runs from the beginning to the end. Rather, what Jesus is saying here is that worship is the priority and from that worship should flow our good works what he's saying is is that hey i'm here and there is nothing more important there is no good work that you can do that supersedes the most important thing of every human soul which is to first meet with and worship jesus That's what Jesus is saying. And then from that, from our right worship, flows our good works. And then notice what he says to to them about Mary. In verse 7, he says, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. This is strange because Mary was anointing him like somebody would anoint a king for a coronation. But Jesus applies her act of worship not... As if it were the coronation for a king, but for the burial of a corpse, because he knows that his death is coming. Jesus' humiliation on the cross comes before his exaltation as the king. Listen to Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see Paul's logic in Philippians 2, verse 8, that Jesus, before his exaltation, Suffered the greatest humiliation, his death on the cross, and on the cross he took the sins of his people. He bore the wrath of God for all those that would trust in Jesus. Friends, this is the very heart of the gospel. This is what it means to be a Christian that we are worshiping this Jesus because before he was coronated as king, he was humbled on the cross in his crucifixion. And on the cross he takes our sin, he takes the wrath of God. He extinguishes it. He removes it. He rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And he now commands all of us to trust in him, to worship him, to put our faith in his righteousness, his work, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and be reconciled to God. So I ask this question, friends, as we conclude. I want you to think about this spectrum. I want you to think about Mary, in this beautiful example of extravagant, spiritual, sincere, humble, sacrificial worship. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I want you to see Judas, this self-deceived heart that was able somehow to parade around with Jesus for some three years all the while being deceived in his own heart about who he truly was and ultimately not trust in Jesus. Mary, Judas, the spiritual spectrum. I'm not saying Mary is the epitome of perfection and that Judas is the worst. I'm just saying in this example, there's this spectrum of Mary and Judas. Where, where, where do you find yourself on that spectrum? wherever you are, whether you feel like you're closer to Mary or you're closer to Jesus, you need Jesus. You need the one who laid down his life on the cross and bore the wrath of God and rose again in victory for you and who is the only one who is really worthy of of the oil of your worship. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. And I want to come to Him with Mary as an example today, worshiping Jesus extravagantly, sacrificially, with pure heart and humility. Let's pray. Lord, may we, the believers in this room, be chastened by our sister Mary. May her example, even as Jesus prophesied that it would be told throughout the ages until he returns, may we be encouraged and exhorted by our big sister Mary. And Lord, may we be warned by this example of Judas. There's anyone in this room who is deceiving themselves, who has lied so many times that they actually believe it. Oh, there's no good sermon. There's no clever conversation. There's there's no earthly means that can open those blind eyes you may use these things but only by your spirit only by the quickening power only by the life-giving power only by the eye-opening power of your holy spirit can you cause any of us who are self-deceived to see ourselves rightly and run to jesus and if that applies to anybody in this room lord i pray that you would do it And may we all, in ways that you have called us to, worship Jesus extravagantly with our lives. And we pray it in his name. Amen.